0: Ownership mentality, individuals that lean into uncertainty, and then kind of a relentless sense of urgency towards the objective. And what that means to us as a field culture is that, candidly, individuals that don't espouse those values probably aren't a great fit, right? And so how do you elevate people to have the confidence to bring that grit to every engagement, to every meeting that they have, and you create a culture around that? When you create a culture that has those elements, you will get on a trajectory not only to grow, but to increase the relevance and credibility with your customers. You will have respect cross-functionally from the rest of the company, and you will be able to accomplish things that are, are well above the plans that are put in front of you.
1: Hi, I'm Jubin go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins. And this is GTMG, a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Now let's get to the episode. Harry, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks, Jude. I am going to read your background back to you. I kick off all these things the same exact way. When I screw up, you tell me where I screwed up and let's fix it and then use that as a jumping off point. Deal? Sounds great. You got your bachelor's in uh, international business and management from Penn State. Then you went to get your MBA from the University of Michigan. Go blue. I was born in Ann Arbor. Then you went to Citigroup. You spent four years there as a management associate for two of those years. And then you were an APAC market manager for about two years. I think you may have moved to Japan or, or Asia for that. And then you did Accenture, like a management consulting gig at Accenture for a few months in 99. Then you went to Valera, Strategic Alliances, and BizDev for four years. You're starting to creep your way closer and closer to the go-to-market organization. Then you go to McData Corporation. That sounds like a burger from McDonald's or MC Data. And then you uh, became the regional sales director there for four years from 03 to 07. Then you went to Brocade. You had a decade-long run there from 07 to 17. First, the director of global SIs for a year, then the senior director, then vice president for almost four years, which is really where I think you sunk your teeth into like all things sales, go to market alliances. And it started to all come together for you, seemingly. And after a really nice run there, you spent a year at Broadcom as the vice president of server and storage, then about a year in 2019 at Elementum as the chief revenue officer. And now, Harry, you are the chief revenue officer of DataStax as of. About a year, year and a half-ish ago, what did I screw up?
0: Spot on, well done. Other than uh, I was fortunate when I did the uh, expat gig for Citigroup, I, I was based in Sydney, Australia, which Sydney. Uh, had much better surfing than places like Singapore. So <laughs> it's fantastic. All right. Also, is it MC Data or Mick Data? So it was Mick Data, and the okay. the, the story was, you know, like most of us, you know, as we, we build our professional careers. We find different mentors and leaders that bring us into next opportunities and that was yeah. exactly the case at mcdata the uh, svp of corp dev brought me over when he left valera to uh, a company that he had just sold his software company to which was mcdata and then yeah. broadcom bought brocade so a series of different exits and sales
1: all right man i definitely want to make sure we talk about data stacks. This company is obviously a Kleiner portfolio company. We both know Kelly Battles, who sits on the board. She said, take it easy on you today. So before I do, I had a couple of questions that I just wanted to pick out on the resume, if that's okay. And then we can go from there. So first, why did you go to Sydney? You know, you're kind of doing the Penn State, University of Michigan, All-American collegiate start. And I think you're from here. And you went to Citigroup and then... I don't know, two years in, you decided to go to Sydney. Just tell me more about that. Was that a career decision or an opportunity for you to grow as, no, as a Harry? it was a little bit of both. So I, I grew up in a
0: rural farm town in, in Pennsylvania, a town of 183 people. That's how you end up at Penn State. I had this aspiration at the time to work on Wall Street. Again, just a very rural environment, dumb farm kid and... When I was at Penn State, I just worked hard to get the grades, drive the right type of curriculum around finance and and economics, and uh, then went through all the different investment and corporate banking interview process and was able to get an opportunity at Citigroup as a part of their, their analyst program. Did that for two years and then was very fortunate early on in that a managing director sponsored me to do an expatriate assignment to manage this foreign currency trading product across Asia Pac, And most of the folks were based in Singapore. And to be honest with you, it was a lifestyle decision. I asked Colin, I, you know, I'm pretty active. At the time I was into mountain biking and surfing and other things and said I'd really like to be based in Sydney and was just lucky that I was able to, to orchestrate that through asking and then traveled two, three weeks out of every month up to the region, covered up the entire region of Asia Pacific. How old were you? I was pretty young. It was the best gig ever. I still don't think I'll live
1: a quality of life. Like, you're t- like your 20s, right? I was in my early 20s, yeah. So this is a roundabout way of asking, but there is a conversation that I was having with a dear friend of mine the other day, and there's an opportunity at her organization, which is growing really quickly, to move to London. And she said, what do you think I should do? And I said, you should do it. I didn't even ask about the opportunity. I just said, you should do it. And she said, you don't even know what the opportunity is. And I said, well, they see something in you where you can be this culture carrier to bring it to London. You're an early stage startup. They're going to grow internationally there. They're growing like crazy. I said, do it mainly because your professional career will accelerate only as quickly as you as a person accelerate. And people often think those are like independent things. I've never thought about it that way. So I said, just go, you'll get better. You'll get to know yourself better. You'll grow as a person which will then make you a more effective professional. Do
0: you agree with that? Jubin, I I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, for many of us here in the Valley, right, we uh, are relatively spoiled in that we have an environment that fosters diversity and inclusion. You, You have different cultures, different environments, and you tend to be operating, for the most part, global in nature. Like anything, it's not until you're truly immersed into another environment that you really... Kind of get those new experiences, and so whether it's you know a new function, new role at a company, or you know a global opportunity, um, anything that you can continue that learning expansion to round you out, I couldn't agree more. Ironically, it's a funny story. So I was literally living right on the surf beach of Manly Beach, which is one of the northern beaches, and you had yeah. a four bedroom. <laughs> you know, full expat gig. I had my long, long wheelbase Defender 110 surfboard in. I had my dog shipped down. He had to go through quarantine for like seven, eight weeks. And I you know, would take the jet cat to work in Central Business District in Sydney every day. But at the time, it was during the dot-com boom. It was in the late 90s. And so I'm aging myself here. And I would talk to several friends that were back in the Valley or back in New York that were working in tech and they were like, I'm worth $20 million. This is going crazy. We're doing this. And there was this passion and energy that I felt. And these were individuals that were in sales. And I referenced back to, you know, I worked really hard to try and get in this competitive banking program. And I looked around me and I would talk to people that were working in sales and tech. And I said, my God, I've got to get there. And that was the catalyst. I went back to grad school. University of Michigan and got my degree there and made a transition to move out here to the valley and get much more active in tech and and transition my career.
1: A lot of folks ask me, like, I want to get into high tech growth, really fast growing companies. And they always say, like, what should I look out for? What's the number one thing that's going to be difficult for me to adjust to? And I always answer change. If you find the right one, like if you pick the right one or the sets of right ones, which all happen to be the guests that I have on the show, they're all the ones that have picked the right ones. The number one challenge is change management. As you grow in scale, how do you stay ahead of the pace of the company? It's almost impossible. It's really hard as an individual, especially as a sales rep. And I talked about this on the show before, but the ground starts to move underneath you so quickly. Territories, comp plans, quotas, sales operations, legal finance, everything changes monthly. And so, man, there's certainly one way to adapt or be adaptable to change, which is going through these high growth startups. Most people haven't done that. So couldn't there be other ways to adapt to change in your personal life that you can then apply? You know, that's why you say like travel with someone that you don't know very well, and you'll get to know a lot about them. The reason they say that is because like all of a sudden there's things that you never saw coming. And as you see that, you understand the way that someone adapts to certain circumstances and situations. And I think building that muscle, again, not to beat a dead horse here, but whether that's personally or professionally, but if it happens personally, feeds so much into what you can learn professionally. Is that fair?
0: I think it is. And I love the theme that you have around grit you know, for these forums, right? Because I, you know, when I think of grit, just coming back to that, that spirit of growth, right? You know, there's kind of an ownership mentality that people espouse there's a leaning into uncertainty and there's this kind of relentless drive to a goal or objective and especially in fast growth companies and in tech companies where things are changing just as you said having that those elements you know that grit that you bring passionately to your teams every day you know those are the types of values and characteristics that I think excel in fast growth tech environments but also they excel in more mature environments as well right because you have that curiosity to learn you have that drive to iterate get a little bit better whether that's you know just the wording in your opening pitch or whether that is how you you know kind of communicate internally with uh, with sharing information so that concept of rip it, it definitely strikes across not just you know startups but mature businesses
1: as well I've never thought about it this way before, but have you or do you qualify for grit through the lens of someone's personal life? Oftentimes in an interview, it's a professional resume based on your experiences in the workplace. I don't know, man, even just talking to you now, couldn't you learn almost as much, if not more about like their personal experience? How do you scratch at that? I use the term curiosity. And then I also, uh, use the
0: term ownership, right? And, and I think that when you combine those two things, to your point, Jubin, when somebody talks about the experiences that they've driven or an initiative that they've driven, those two things of, you know, are they curious? Are they trying to you know, learn? Are they trying to iterate or try? And then do they take a sense of ownership? And you put those two things together, just to your point, at a personal level, in, in the stories, the narratives that they tell, You learn more from that than you will from reading the 10 years of experience, you know, and what they've done in their professional careers. Those are the types of things that I always look for individuals and and leaders to bring onto the team, because if you can assemble a team with those types of values and characteristics, you can do amazing things together and have a hell of a fun time working together with those types of elements.
1: I got a lot of in-mails over the past 10 episodes or so where some of my guests would have these incredible runs and then brief stints and then these incredible runs again. And these are like, again, some of the most prolific CROs ever. And my audience, my customer was telling me like, hey, Jubin, it's great that pick your guest. The CRO of Atlassian was there 10 years, you know, and now he's a CRO, right? Or Snowflake was employee number seven. And now he's a CRO. That's an incredible story. And one that's hard for you, Jubin, to screw up, which is true. Like it's a tough one for me to screw up Chris Dagnan's story. But what happened to that year? Like there's a year on the resume. What happened? Did like, they're almost craving to learn or hear about like, did that person also make the wrong decision? Did they've picked the wrong opportunity. Did they fail? Did they miss their number? Because that's the point where they're like, oh my goodness, tell me more. And I realized that the reason why I think the show has grown in popularity in the way that I'm really grateful that it has is because of those stories. Because people like you aren't supposed to have those stories in some weird way. But I think it is those stories that define what you are today. So man, that's a long-winded way of me asking, Tell me about Broadcom and tell me about Elementum. It looks like you spent about a year in each.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it's funny you mentioned it last year. I, I literally just got off a call with Jay Simon. And what I will say as a starting point is, regardless of how successful you think somebody is, we all fail, right? Every Every one of us, we're all human. We all hurt people that we love. We all fail in different things. We all are flawed, right? I think that's human nature. The question is how... Do you learn from it? How do you iterate and how do you improve? And then how do you take those learnings and share them with others, right? And so just to get specific about your question on both Broadcom and Elementum, Broadcom, we had, we had sold Brocade to Broadcom for roughly $5 billion. And I was at Brocade for a long period of time, and we we're trying to turn that around, make it more software oriented. Broadcom came in and bought us. There was a two-year integration period that I worked with Broadcom, where Hawk and Charlie had asked me to run the server and storage division, where we were handcuffed from CFIUS, a government agency that provides approval for a foreign entity transaction, because Broadcom at the time was domiciled as a Singapore company. So mm-hmm. we had this year-long waiting period where we were technically being bought and waiting to close the transaction. So it was actually there for probably two years on working on that integration. We finally got the transaction closed and we integrated the team and we did amazing things for Broadcom's customers and Broadcom's investors. We really crushed the numbers. We grew the business substantially to almost two and a half billion from 1.9 at the start. And we did a flawless execution that led Broadcom and brocade customers to be you know, happy with things. What I found for me personally and why I did my year there and pursued the next gig was it was a culture that just wasn't for me. Phenomenal company, phenomenal leaderships. So I learned more in that year than I ever have in years prior working for an individual like Hot 10. But it was a different culture that missed the spirit of innovation and growth. And I wanted to get back to that I had been at Brocade and I wanted to get a transition into the SaaS market space where, where things were growing in SaaS and cloud. I had an opportunity that came up at Elementum, so which was a supply chain SaaS company, which was a turnaround where they needed help to reinvent their go-to-market and get repeatability. Brilliant CEO there, Nader McHale, you know, ex-McKinsey, was uh, brother in arms with him for a year as we reinvented go-to-market. For me, that change for Elementum was about learning SaaS, learning SaaS go to market, and kind of reinventing my model there. At the end of that year period, the reality was Elementum was a little bit small, me coming from a $2.5 billion mm-hmm. revenue P&L that I managed to you know, something that was more Series D oriented and a turnaround with a new product offering. So I started to pursue discussions with other areas. I had no intent whatsoever to work in the database space. I wanted to stay in yeah. SaaS and cloud, but several board members that I knew said, you should talk to Chet Kapoor, you know, he's looking for a CRO. And, you know, I said, what space? And he's like, database space. It's like, ah, you know, finally ended up meeting with, uh, with Chet just in an informal discussion. And one of the most amazing leaders that I had encountered and what was supposed to be a 20, 30 minute informal session turned into a 90 minute session. And I was really inspired by his style, his vision, where he was going. And that then led to meeting the rest of the management team, getting deeper understanding the space, and joined DataStax because it had a really significant addressable market opportunity. The people and the culture there seemed to be the right team to capitalize on things. And the strategic direction that everybody that I met with and the mission orientation said, wow, this is a team that I could contribute to and have impact to and learn from and we can do something really special. And that's been the journey that we're on.
1: You use the word turnaround a couple times. Define that in your mind for me. What does that word mean to you in the context of you entering a business? Because I think a lot of times people think of a turnaround as like a GE type turnaround. How do you think about it? So I'll give you the three characteristics that I think of a turnaround
0: in tech, but at the highest level, a turnaround happens all the time in technology companies. It's the classic innovators' dilemma, right? Things shift. You need to adjust to meet to the market opportunity that's out there. And when enterprise or when companies don't do that in a fluid, proactive way, they get stuck. They lose their growth momentum. And when they lose their growth momentum, then customers start to churn, then you know teams start to fall apart because it's not as much of a fun place to work for. And so there's really three things that I think of when you need to turn around a tech company. One is you really need to, to step back and undo the company strategy. And that can be a variety of different priorities. Some of it could be a financial situation that needs to change, but more and more with tech companies, undoing that historical strategy has to do with product and engineering-led decisions. right? So for us at DataStax, we were historically this company that was the company behind an open-source distribution of Apache Cassandra. So Apache Cassandra, the database that was created by Facebook, Apple, and Netflix, and then given to the Apache Foundation. Most modern apps that you use are powered by Apache Cassandra or other databases. So you order your latte on Starbucks, that's DataStax. You do Venmo, PayPal, Apple Pay, that's DataStax. You do your online banking with J.P. Morgan, that's DataStax. That's a database that powers that. But getting that product and engineering-led change, DataStax was a single product company that was designed for on-prem. As the business developed, we missed the investment in the community, in the open source community, and we also missed the investment in the cloud. And so Getting product and engineering-led innovation around those two areas were critical for us in changing that company's strategy direction. So the first thing is getting your company strategy. The second thing is really undoing your your go-to-market motion, because there's a reason why it's a turnaround because you aren't growing or you aren't growing fast enough, and that has to do with your go-to-market strategy. So how do you take that new product engineering-led roadmap, if you will, or direction? And then nine times out of 10 in a tech company, that changes your go-to-market strategy. In our case, we had people that would sell database capacity to database administrators and operators. And now we needed to engage the development community around microservices and cloud-based adoption of the database platform via public cloud marketplace. Very different go-to-market motion. So how do you change that go-to-market? And then I think the last piece is externally, so as you get your product strategy together, you get your go-to-market motion together, how do you change the perception of the value you bring to your enterprises, your users? And how do you just maintain a a cadence of external focus, re-anchoring, reframing, helping the market understand the value that you're bringing to them? And so those are kind of the three Segments that I look at and turnarounds, and uh, fortunately, we're on uh, just working on the last one. We're of the first two.
1: That's a really good definition. And for the audience listening, this business, stacks, if you've never heard of it, does over a hundred million of ARR. It's my understanding cash flow positive. It's raised over one hundred and ninety million. At one point, maybe last year or two years ago, is going to IPO the numbers that were being thrown around on the web, at least were over a billion dollars. So this is a, a serious company. And the customer base is like most of the Fortune 100. Like Rob Carter, the CIO of FedEx, I was having breakfast with him a couple of weeks ago. And as I was preparing for this, I heard your CEO, Chet, doing a podcast with him that he started and Rob is the man. And as I was listening to this, it was very clear to me how strategic this technology was to their business. By the way they weren't even talking about data stacks but just listening to him that this was an exciting opportunity for you too so with that being said there's a couple of things that that you had mentioned undoing the company strategy undoing the go-to-market motion and then perception and marketing you continue to mention that there seemed to be a key tenant in all of these that was an enabler of the next phase of the business which was on-prem to cloud that's an easy unlock so You were talking about the go-to-market motion. I was smiling because they're about to do like the go-to-market bottoms-up motion. And I say classic like the new era of go-to-market. This confluence, this Atlassian, this Slack, this whatever, Datadog. And I was like, Terry's never done that. Not from what I can see. But you know what he has done? He's changed the culture, he's changed the strategy, and he's changed the people and the characteristics of those people. So... As I look at that, I'm like, okay. as you evaluate the opportunity, knowing that you're going to go into uncharted waters with tactics that you may not necessarily have core competencies in, how much goes into making sure that the strategy of the executive team and the people that are there you see eye to eye with? Do you have to do an extra level of interviewing, diligence, understanding with those around the table that are making the decisions around those three pillars, marketing, et cetera.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things that, that I love about what we're building at Stacks is we've got a really flat, non-hierarchical, mission-oriented culture. And to your, your question about alignment uh, makes it very easy to be transparent about where we are to pull together and pull different people in cross-functionally to, to accomplish things. From an experience level, you always try and hire people better than you, you know, people that have expertise and competency. And so, you know, part of making sure that as we move into this kind of more modern velocity sales, you know, that's uh, SDR led, inside led, is you you surround yourself with great leaders that have been there, done that. Right. The sharing and the alignment cross functionally that's got to become a company culture thing. And and the mission orientation that we have, you know, involves. Chet and I speaking four or five times a day, close collaboration with marketing, and ultimately a scenario where everybody is pulling in the direction around those issues. And you maintain that external focus on what the issues are. So we have a uh, concept internally that we talk about that I'll steal this from Chet, but facts are outside, opinions are in. So are you talking to your enterprises, your partners, those individuals that are driving your revenue growth engine, or the facts versus people's opinions inside? And so we tend to drive a very data-driven organization based on facts outside and a lot of customer interaction actually on a flight at 5.30 tomorrow morning to go and meet with Rob Carter out in Memphis. <laughs> so just to give you the idea of the type of culture that we're driving that's externally focused uh, and his executive team. I think that you surround yourself with people that have competency in the areas. You create a culture that is around learnings and iterations as you go into these changes. And that involves a lot of really significant sense of urgency, daily standups what's happened today, how did these calls go, what's working, what's not, what do we change? That's the beautiful thing about turnarounds in early stage startups. You can make change in hours. The CEO and I at, at Elementum, um, we would literally, after doing a few customer calls and we would do A-B testing on different you know, positioning, different pricing, we would just change the pricing because we would learn from something and then that would be you know, the new presentation. So you can move with velocity and test. And as long as you have that spirit and that culture that leans into the uncertainty, that is a relentless drive to goal. You learn from it and you get better. And I think that's so key in tech startups and turnarounds.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The other thing, as you're talking, that got me thinking was in this evolution of these businesses to unlock the next phase of growth, as you go from old revenue to new revenue. There's a fancier way of saying that, like legacy to whatever, like SaaS subscription revenue. It's a very, very tricky balance, particularly for the revenue leader, because you on the one hand have a number that you have to deliver on, that you have predictability through traditional channels of revenue, right? And I mean, literally like the install base that you have with the renewals that they have, with the channel partners that you have delivering on those, and you don't want to rock the boat too much, but on the other hand, you join this company to in some ways rock the boat. And speaking from experience, like my time at Palo Alto, I helped build the cloud business unit there. Like Evident was the first acquisition that you know then became nine more for what became a public cloud, essentially BU at Palo Alto Networks. And that wasn't a turnaround in the sense that the business was doing well, But it was very obvious that the future of this business was not going to be hardware in a data center. It's going to be delivered through SaaS in probably the public cloud. And there was a hell of a lot of friction because the traditional guard had a number to deliver on. And they knew that they could get predictability on delivering that number through what they knew. And then There's other forces at play that say, okay, well, no, no, Like, we need to transform this business. You're actually right now at the crux of both of those. How do you think about it? So I think this is not
0: unique to data stacks, right? This is most tech companies, and it's just a different scale that they need to reinvent themselves around where the market's going. The one thing I would say is that legacy business is something you can't take your eye off the ball of. In our case, we have over 400 enterprises that their applications and their business rely on data stacks to deliver to their objectives and their customers. So we have a lot of focus on hugging those top enterprises, making sure that we uh, have the right types of technical folks to retain and, in fact, get net revenue expansion out of those relationships. But on the new side, the thing that I've learned the most when you go through these transitions, you can't straddle. And what I mean by that is we can't take that team that is totally pro at managing, in our case, DataStax Enterprise on-prem software in large mission-critical applications and go and tell them to sell 20K SaaS database lands. And so what we've structured is we've introduced the field organization is we've got a global account organization that the primary charter is to work with those 400 plus enterprises that we have. But then we have our regional organization, which is not compensated at all on our legacy product. So 100% focused on cloud, 100% focused on on Cassandra open source support. And that allows you to then bring the focus that's needed to be able to ramp quickly, compete, and drive repeatability. Um, so, so just that straddling, I, th- I think is one of the biggest challenges that companies go through where you have a rock star account exec and she you know, has been managing the biggest account for the longest period of time. And you want to give her the new stuff, but you need a team of specialists to actually bridge that along. And when you think about scaling go-to-market, you need to actually keep uh, keep it separate for the new offerings.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Are the global account managers is a component of their variable compensation tied to good revenue, if you will.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's a part of it, right? But that's the team that has the account relationships that are existing and, you know, they have the specialist architect support. But in terms of the whole new go-to-market motion, when you want to build scale and you want to build a flywheel around that, right? This is where you need a separate team that is very new logo oriented, new land, new project oriented, and just really understands the go-to-market motion on how to do that.
1: Yeah, and the other thing that this got me thinking of, you have some serious human capital assets in the business today. And as the business transforms, it's a lot easier to get those folks up and running and speaking cloud and speaking SaaS and thinking about the new go-to-market orientation and how to do bottoms up and how to communicate that to the tops down, right? How does enablement work in that world? How do you train? How do you find and develop the new core competencies and characteristics?
0: What I love about the forums that you put together, Jubin, right, is it's this kind of renewed acknowledgement around the importance and, and also the complexity of sales and go- to market, right? For tech companies, go-to market growth is the most critical thing. And it's extremely complex and, and hard and and so there's been this legacy term that you just mentioned around enablement right how do you enable people how do you get them ramped and if i just reflect back to what enablement meant in terms of what, what i thought about it 10 years ago it would be somebody that would schedule training for people and they would be a part of sales ops or the sales organization but not the real driving force of how the company was successful. We don't use the term enablement internally. We use the term elevation. And we have this spirit of learning iteration and elevating our sales capability. And you can't sell SaaS unless you understand the product that you're selling. And when you are making these transitions from selling software, if you think of software sales, you would have a sales guy or gal that would come in and then you would have a data architect or a systems engineer that would come in and show a demo and all this. In the modern SaaS world, there's no reason why an account exec or an SDR or somebody that's sales-oriented can't showcase a product offering. And so one of the key things that we do internally as a part of our elevation is everybody in the field has to be able to demonstrate our product, right? You have to be able to demonstrate. That doesn't need mean that you need to be able to create you know, a multi-region database and show queries and things like that. But you need to be able to show how we're taking this incredibly powerful thing, in this case, the Cassandra database offering and are making it so simple that I can show it to you in four minutes as a CRO who does not have a mechanical engineering background and can explain the value that that can bring to an enterprise, a user, a CIO, CTO. So the first thing that we do is we make sure that everybody from an enablement or elevation perspective can demonstrate our product. And I think that's a benchmark for SaaS that every company should have. The second thing that we really focus on is a lot of people are in sales, you know, you wanna transact, you need to transact. It's key to keeping the revenue engine going. But we really focus on partnering with enterprises is the term we, we use internally. And there's three key things that that go to that. We think of a benchmark to any meeting that we have. Does that enterprise feel understood, right? Are we showing up with an informed point of view, a little bit of knowledge about their business, maybe some referenceability of use cases that their peers use, but they feel like we understand them when we engage with them. The second is, are we viewed as experts in that engagement? Did we bring some level of expertise, some level of new knowledge some level of recommendation, something that they can learn from and act on. And then lastly, do they feel like we're on their side? Do they feel understood by experts who are on their side? And when I say they're on their side, are we gonna help them accelerate their priorities or objectives? And you take the ability to showcase what you sell and understand it in SaaS, and then you combine that spirit of partnering where customer feels understood, that we're bringing expertise and we can help them. And you put those two things together, you can be really successful and not have a fatigued conversation with the person across the table from you or across the Zoom call in the uh, current case.
1: Feeling understood and having someone by my side, that feels like what I look for like in a literal life partner. So I think you're on the right scent there. On the have to demo piece, I couldn't agree more. That's table stakes. Like as a rep, the days of bringing in an SE to demo the product on your behalf, either you're not technical enough or the product is too complicated.
0: Couldn't agree more, but you would be surprised because people have been selling in a way, right? Partnered with, you know, a technical advocate for, you know, in some cases decades, right? What I look for is do you get excited about showing the product? And if you don't get excited about showing the product, it's probably not the right place to work, right? You really have to bring that passion, that confidence, conviction to engagements Um, because if you don't
1: believe, your
0: customer isn't going to believe, right?
1: And as a rep, I get really frustrated when the SE is the expert and the rep is just the deal gal. I think that's a poor way of approaching a customer engagement because ultimately it's a team sport. And, you know, at some point when you, Harry, who's the CRO, not even a rep, layers removed from selling a deal, when you go to... Tennessee and chat with Rob or the FedEx team or whatever, at some point, Rob, who's very technical, is going to ask you a question and is probably pretty basic in his eyes. And it might be pretty basic in your eyes too. If you cannot at least acknowledge and reciprocate with some reasonable answer, you've lost your credibility. And I think it's a stain on the organization. I think it's a poor reflection of changing your brand If you want to change your perception and your brand as an organization and you're saying that you're going to do things on behalf of the customer and you're going to transform with your customer and you can't answer the basic questions on what transformation looks like from their perspective as a sales rep, you're doing it wrong. I feel really strongly about that.
0: I think you're spot on. And and the the point that you've made around or the technology is too complex. And this is where, back to the turnaround, right, piece where I said in tech turnarounds, the product and engineering led nature of turnarounds is so critical. And we've got Ed Aonoff who runs product and Sam Ramji who leads strategy and you know, two amazing individuals. But they pride themselves on you know, how we are just making adoption of uh, this, what used to be viewed as an incredibly complex offering you know, radically simple via any API, via just simplified cloud adoption. So uh, that makes it a lot easier and also allows you to scale and just get to the point when you're engaged with your customers, right? You can showcase them, the value to them and they get it in minutes versus uh, an hour long slideshow.
1: And on the demo piece, is there a certification that you do minus Harry or the team going and sitting in on a reps pitch meeting? Have you found efficient good high quality ways of making sure that everyone's singing the same song and with a high quality bar
0: yeah so we measure everything and in the case of what we just went through everybody on our extended leadership team which is roughly 30 leaders will sit down with myself or one of the geo leads and actually do a 30-minute session on a demo with feedback what we'll do is we'll take an initial Demo that we think is world class, and let people on their own time view that, and then they will present, and then we'll provide feedback, and then each of the coaches, the leaders, the you know RVPs, etc., will then do the same with their teams. All the data architects, all the open source consulting solutions folks, the entire field organization goes through this, and then we just measure on a daily basis how we're tracking towards 100% completion.
1: That makes sense. Before we have to wrap my boss for most of my operating career came from NetApp and EMC. And there's something about the way that enablement, quote unquote, used to be done there that I think really fondly of, which is that the pitch certification was done on a whiteboard. And if you couldn't whiteboard the solution out, you wouldn't pass the pitch certification. Like you have to be able to stand there and just do it with nothing else. And so when you were talking about the pitch, you used the word demo, which put a smile on my face because like That is the pitch these days. Somewhere, somehow, along the way, we lost the script, no pun intended, and we have, like, 20 marketing slides. And then we go to the demo. And then we don't even do the demo as salespeople. And I don't know how that transition happened where product has become more important, products become easier to use, yet somehow we put more slides before we present the product. You've discussed this in
0: many of your prior sessions, right? But, you know, the market is increasingly a self-service market. Enterprises, users, developers... They're going to do their own research on their own time about where, you know, they're going to have gravity towards offerings. When they come in, you know, they don't want 20 slides about a company overview or what you think. They, in a perfect world, want to see what this thing does and how it brings value to them and how it's easy to adopt, right? And so there's no better way to get to that point uh, as quick as possible. And the engagements is especially like valuable for inside an SDR teams. I love those areas of the business. I think they're the most fun to work with. There's the most velocity, the most iterations, the most learning. And Every word and every tone matters in the engagement. And so in the demos of SaaS that we talked about or asked for our our SaaS product, there is a way that you could do a demo and you just set up a database and you walk through things and it's fairly dry. You can also introduce levity with the naming of the database with the person that you're playing off of. You can do a little bit of research understanding what his or her key applications are, and you can cater that discussion towards how this would be better for this specific IoT application or this specific e-commerce application. And you can walk through a real-time narrative once you understand the product that the customer will be like, wow, that's me. You know me. You seem to be an expert on this. And you're telling me this is going to save me money and, be, and simplify adoption for my team's Seems like you're aligned with accelerating my priorities. And that is the magic of SaaS and velocity sales models, that you can do that in a five to 10 minute session where I think we go wrong in sales and go to market so much is exactly what you said, where we've got a 15 page deck and we wanna talk to that, right? And we don't actually take the time to make sure that we just jump into it quickly, use people's time wisely and show what's relevant to them and can bring value to the business.
1: Yeah, it's actually a lazy way of building credibility, in my mind. Easiest way to do it is is know your product inside and out and understand what pain points your product is solving, having done preparation and research on behalf of your customer. So anyway, that's a good place for us to wrap. What does the word grit mean to you and how do you or your teams apply it?
0: I think I mentioned this earlier on, right? Ownership mentality, individuals that lean into uncertainty, and then kind of a relentless sense of urgency towards the objective. And what that means to us as a field culture is that, candidly, individuals that don't espouse those values probably aren't a great fit, right? And so how do you elevate people to have the confidence to bring that grit to every engagement, to every meeting that they have, and you create a culture around that? When you create a culture that has those elements you will get on a trajectory not only to grow, but to increase the relevance and credibility with your customers. You will have respect cross-functionally from the rest of the company, and you will be able to accomplish things that are, are well above the plans that are put in front of you.
1: As this business hits what feels like will be its inevitable next era of growth, are you hiring? Are you hiring SaaS people? What are you hiring? We are hiring in every role. We're doubling our, our quarterly revenue with
0: our Astro product. You know, And I mentioned what we're doing with our legacy business and some really exciting you know, expansions in, in new adjacent areas. We are hiring in all field functions. And if anybody is interested in, in any of the things that we're building and anything uh, captured people's attention of what we're building here at DataStax, um, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. And I'll be sure to connect you with the right folks.
1: Harry, this was fun. Thanks, man. Appreciate your time.
0: Hey, I love what you're doing, man. Keep it rolling. Thanks, Shuban.
1: That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes with CROs from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon.